sing, but just before he does, let's pray for him. So Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Nick and um, thank you for what he's prepared and what he's got to bring to us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's like food for us, food for our spirits. And would you feed us this morning as we open our mouths um, for you to feed us? Would you fill our, fill our hearts, fill our minds with your word? And um, yeah, yeah, I've probably said it all. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So today I'm going to be talking about keeping true in the long haul. It's about how do we keep going with all that God wants to do in us. And we're finishing our series on Nehemiah as we look at the very end of that, uh, that, that great book and what happened there. Um, on Friday, I had the privilege of going to an amazing event. It was uh, the last Coffee and Kids of term. If you don't know Coffee and Kids, it's our mums and toddlers, well, parents or and carers and toddlers group. Um, great event. I counted over 60 adults there and loads and loads and loads of kids. Um, and it was a great event, particularly to celebrate and to thank um, Joe and Esty, who's not here. Here's a picture of these two lovely ladies who have been leading the group faithfully for 13 years, um, who've kept true to what God called them to do through good times and also some pretty hard times as well, who've kept serving the people of Didcot. It was an inspiration to me actually being there and sort of seeing that. It's quite emotional. They cried, I have to say. I even cried a bit, but I do that quite easily to be fair. Um, There is something very precious about seeing people faithfully serving God's purposes. To Joe and also to Esty, who's not here, for what they've done for that over the years. And of course, to the rest of the Coffee and Kids team who've served so faithfully over the years as well, and many who will be continuing to do so in the future. Um, That's about keeping true over the long haul, when things are tough and when things are good keeping going. I've been reflecting too on uh, 20 years of the King's Church. So in um, the 26th of September uh, 1999 was the first Sunday morning meeting of the King's Church, uh, nearly 20 years ago. Um, It was really an exciting time. We started small. I've, this is a, here are some photos that Chris put together actually for our 10th anniversary. So some of them quite old photos. Uh, but oh, that's, so that's from t- 10 to 20 years ago. Obviously we'll have some new photos after our, our 20th anniversary. It was a small, idealistic group of people. I was counting up in my head about sort of 15, 16, 17 adults, two children and a baby, um, who were passionate about building a church for the unchurched in Didcot. And I remember um, that first Sunday morning, we met in Barnes Close Community Centre, um, which is not very big. Um, instead of the sort of 15, 20 people who we knew were part of the group, there was actually about 40 or 50 people there on that morning. It was sort of packed out the doors. Um, in truth, quite a lot of them um, didn't come back. Um, but... <laughs> But some people did. 
some people responded to our leaflets. Some people, uh, you know, found the love of God through that. And shortly after, after two or three weeks, we moved to the what's now the, but it's not called the Vibe anymore, isn't it? What used to be the youth centre on Edmonds Park to find somewhere bigger. There was huge excitement. Oh, and I meant to say, by the way, we're having another party on the 29th of September. So Sunday, 29th of September, put it in your diaries. We will have a Sunday morning, which will be, uh, yeah, one says a normal meeting, but a bit of a celebration of all that God's done. And then there's going to be some sort of party lunch, that sort of thing, which there's a, a group working on, and I don't actually know any details of at this point. But there will be a, a do, okay? So we're having a do then um, to celebrate. Right. So there was huge excitement 20 years ago as we started with that group. Since then, we've had good times where we've seen amazing things happen. We've seen people added, people become Christians. We've seen transformation. And we've had some bad times too, when things have been a struggle, when people have drifted off, when difficult and sometimes tragic things have happened. Sometimes great, sometimes grind. As I look back at that that group of people from the early days... um, Some have moved on and are serving uh, God elsewhere. Jeremy and Joe Bray, who planted the church, then went on to plant a church in Warwick. They're now leading uh, Henley Baptist Church, and they will be coming on the uh, the 29th. They're going to be there, as will Robin and Lisa, who who sort of led the church at another point in between. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, other people will be coming back. Um, so many are serving God elsewhere. Um, some are still here. Uh, and we've been joined by many wonderful people over the years. But it saddens me to say that some have drifted away from church and, and from God. And that really is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in the last chapter of the book. Chapter 13. They've had all these incredible things going on. They started this rebuilding of the walls back in 444 BC. Um, They got the walls built in 52 days. They then got all the people together. They read from God's word. They committed themselves to following it. They had a great celebration as uh, to celebrate two groups walking around the top of the walls and meeting at the other end um, to praise God. And now in chapter 13, it's It's some time later, at least 12 or 13 years later, because we know that Nehemiah went back to see, he left Jerusalem in uh, 432 BC and went back to King Artaxerxes um, in Persia. And he was there for some period of time. And then after that, he comes back again. So it could be 13 years later, it could be 20 years later. We don't know. But sometime later, Nehemiah comes back after an extended absence. And he finds that things have drifted in three key areas um, of life. Um, In truth, two and a half thousand years later, not much has changed about the human heart. And the same three issues are issues which affect us and and can impact or derail our faith today. Um, Money and the impact of that, work and rest, and also sex and relationships. And three key areas which have sort of derailed many of the Jewish people from fully following God there. And they're things that actually we need to watch 
um, that they don't derail us, but instead we can keep going, keep true in the long haul as God wants us to. I thought Ruth's picture uh, that she shared about Jesus, God loving us as we are because he sees what we're going to be was very powerful today. He wants us to keep true in the long haul, to keep changing, to keep being, becoming who he wants us to be. And these are things that, that potentially will trip us up and in some senses had tripped up the people there. So we're going to look at each one there and then think about how can we learn from that to build lives today that are going to help us to keep true to our God. So the first issue is money. This is in Nehemiah 13, uh, verses 4 to 13. Would anyone like a Bible to read? If so, stick your hand up. Cool. Okay, so. So Nehemiah has just come back, effectively, um, from being with King Artaxerxes back in Persia again, um, sometime after 432 BC. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. If you remember, Tobiah the Ammonite from the early chapters was one of the guys who'd been opposing the rebuilding of the wall, good friend of Sambalat, the Horonite. And uh, so he was effectively one of Nehemiah's enemies, if you like. Um, so, he, so Eliashib was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. So one of the rooms is actually meant to be used for storing things for God's work in the temple has now been given to this effectively enemy of the process, to, um, to do something else in. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Act of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, we don't know how long later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of the God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Then all, Jew, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zachar the son of Mataniah their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. So money is a key issue. Our attitude to money can be something which helps us to serve God 
or derails us in our service of him. Reading back in chapter 10, uh, Paul spoke on a couple of weeks ago, um, at the conclusion of the building of the wall, they, they read God's law and then all the people together made a great national agreement, if you like, to follow God's law. They said, uh, we will do all that God has commanded us to do. And they all signed it and that sort of thing. Um, And then the agreement goes into lots of specific details, actually particularly about money. Okay, there's a whole uh, string of them. So they agreed contributions of money and goods, both to support the work of the priests uh, with the worship in the temple and also Levites who were musicians and singers and and guards and other people who are going to help in the temple, and also the work of the Levites, this particular clan, in teaching and helping people understand the law and effectively caring for the community beyond the sort of temple walls. Um, So they they made agreements to contribute to all these sort of things. Various different ones are listed in chapter 10. There's something called the temple tax, a third of a shekel for each man, uh, normally given on an annual basis, uh, which was seems to have been used for the maintenance of the building. It's like a sort of annual tax, if you like, uh, for the maintenance. Wood for the altar fires to be able to keep the altars going. You actually need to have lots of wood coming in for them. The first fruits. So whenever a harvest, at the beginning of a harvest, they had a kind of harvest festival, and you would bring the best and the first bits of your grain or your oil or whatever your crop is and present it to God, and it would go to the priest to help support them. Um, firstborn son or animal so when you had your firstborn son or when each animal had its first uh, male offspring um, that was considered to be holy to the Lord and if it was an animal if it was a clean animal you would sacrifice it if it was a, another, an unclean animal as they were in sort of the rituals you'd actually pay some money to redeem it and obviously if it was your child you would pay money to redeem it instead, and there was a, an offering for that um, instead um, as a symbol of thanking God for, for this. And also tithes. So they then gave 10% of all their produce. As it came in, they would then pass it over to the Levites, who in turn would give a tenth of that to the priests. Um, generous giving, enabling God's work to continue and thrive. So that's what they had agreed to do. But now... It was going wrong. What's happened here? It's, it's like theft in a multi-storey car park. It's wrong on so many levels. <laughs> Some people have heard that before, so they responded quickly. What's happened? The people have stopped giving, and the very storeroom, the place where they're meant to put the stuff, has been used for Tobias' stuff, whatever he's doing in there instead. Um, practically, this has a big impact. So why does it matter? Practically, it means that the Levites, who were meant to be praising God, leading people in worship, and also teaching people from God's laws and caring for the community, have stopped doing that. They need to provide for their families, so they've gone back to working in the fields and given up on what God has called them to do. Um, Spiritually, it's had an impact so the people can't come to to the temple and worship in the same way. And the thing about money is practically what we give has an impact. Um, or when we, when we don't do that. But spiritually, has an impact too. Because what we think and how we treat money reveals our hearts. Jesus talked a lot about money, actually. It's one of the things he talks most about. He says uh, famous statements like, 
Um, you can't serve both God and money, um, apparently unless you discover multitasking. Um, he said to the rich young ruler, leave, sell everything, give to the poor, and then follow me. Um, he said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And in that very famous parable of the sower, he talks about the seed going out, the seed being the word of God, and it's sort of cast out all over the place. And some of it falls on poor soil. And he says what happens is the seeds sprout up quickly and it grows quickly. You think, oh, this is a great plant. And then the sun comes up and the, and the plant withers and dies because it's got no root. And when Jesus is explaining what that means, he says, the seed on poor soil springs up quickly, but it withers because it has no root. It hears the word, but worry, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth can choke the work of God in our hearts and stop it from getting in there. What we do with money reflects ultimately whether we trust God to provide for us. You know, whether we think this is our stuff or this is God's that he has given us and that we can, we can trust him with. So, what steps should we take to put God first in money, to not let it deflect us from following him and doing things his way? Uh, primarily, there's a mind and a heart issue. It's about understanding stewardship, understanding that everything we have comes from him that it all belongs to him and that he graciously gives us what we need and we can trust him to do that. So that is a heart thing, to trust God and trust that God will provide for us what we need. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. It's about trusting God for what we need for today and he will do it. What does that look like in practice? What practical steps should we take? Um, so we've seen in the Old Testament, the general picture was that they would tithe, they'd give this 10% offering. Uh, depending on how you understand it, possibly they gave several 10% offerings actually, um, and gave more as God led them um, for particular things. In the New Testament, in truth it is not entirely clear what they did. Um, it's very clear that generosity was commanded that they cared about supporting Christian workers, about mission, about helping the poor, and about setting aside money regularly. Those are all mentioned in the New Testament. It is very likely that the first Christians continued the Jewish practice of tithing and then gave more as God led um, on top of that. And what he, We don't know that for certain, but that seems to be very likely how they did it. So what are we saying? Money reveals our hearts. Money can be a trap, can lead us. It is not the root of all evil, as some people have misquoted the, 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 the Bible. But it does say in the Bible, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And unless we set our hearts right on that, it can lead us into all kinds of trouble. So if we want to stick true to God, keep true in the long haul, let's get our attitudes right. 
about money. And that may mean reflecting on what we give, on what we do, on how we spend our money. Let's know the goodness and love of God as we trust him to provide and do with it as he asks. So money, that's one area that can, uh, that can derail us and we need to look out for. Next issue they hit was about work and particularly about rest, about the Sabbath. So let's read Nehemiah 15.22. Uh, sorry, Nehemiah 13.15-22. In those days... I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds. All other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to, bring the sab- to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God. Show mercy to me according to your great love. So what was Sabbath? Sabbath in the Jewish law was taking the seventh day, the Saturday, off as a day of rest. Um, What's really interesting to me in this is, you know, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, and even there are particularly the Ten Commandments that we read about in Exodus. Um, But of all those things, it's particularly this one that gets picked up. Um, It seems to be really important. It's really emphasised. Why is that? Uh, Maybe because it's more likely to impact us. Most of us have the choice of how we spend our time on a weekly basis to some extent. Hopefully few of us have the opportunity or indeed the motive to murder very often. So the Ten Commandments were all there, but maybe this was one which particularly affected people on a daily basis. Um, But certainly God picks up on it again and again through the Old Testament. Work is really important to who we are. Um, ask someone who's been unemployed for a long, term and, long time and they'll tell you, you know, what it feels like not to have work and the challenges that. God made us um, to be like that. That's a really important thing for us. But so is rest. God himself rested at creation. Did God need to rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? Um, probably not. But he set it as a pattern for us because he made us to be like that. It's really important to him. He rested on the seventh day. He set in for the Israelites this idea of a, a weekly day of rest, but also a whole load of other patterns of rest. So they had festivals, typically four every year, where they spent about a week holiday off 
um, spending time together with their families celebrating. Lord, he set in principle this thing where um, every seventh year they would take a break from tending the fields. And actually, he promised that if they kept it faithfully, God would provide enough food in the sixth year to keep and keep them going through the seventh year as well as what they'd find from uh, glean from the edges. He also put in this, this rhythm of every 50 years there would be jubilee, where they would set free all the Israelite slaves and do various other things to celebrate. Um, it's a pattern of rest at key points. Why does it matter? It matters practically because God set this rhythm of regular breaks for humanity. He built it into our being. There's some interesting uh, studies out there. At certain points under some of the communist regimes, um, they decided they wanted people to work more and therefore they changed the pattern to um, 10 days and then a day of rest within uh, some of those structures. And they found that actually productivity and that sort of thing declined. Even though people were working more hours, they were actually uh, you know, achieving less because uh, they were no longer having a chance to rest in the same way. We are made to need some kind of, kind of rest. But spiritually, Sabbath is actually about trust. It's about saying, God, I trust you to provide even if I don't work today. It's not all down to me to provide, to my hard work. I trust you. There's a really powerful picture of this in Exodus chapter 16. So this is in the desert. The people of Israel have come out to Egypt. They're in the desert and they're hungry. They need food. And God provides them this incredible stuff, manna, this kind of bread from heaven which appears on the ground each morning and they can gather it. Um, but there's something really interesting about the manna. So they're told, it's like daily bread, because they're told, just gather enough for today. And you have to trust God that there's going to be enough, there's going to be a new bunch of it tomorrow. Some people don't do that. They don't trust God. So they gather more, more than they need for the first day. Next day they wake up and there's maggots in their, their bread. It's gone off already, uh, bizarrely. Um, they look outside and there's fresh manna on the ground. And so they learn, actually, day by day through the week, God provides new, and there's no point keeping it over. But then when it comes to the Sabbath day, um, God doesn't provide any more. No more comes. But he provides double on the sixth day. And actually, bizarrely, or miraculously, the, uh, the, the manna lasts two days. The sixth day to the seventh day, it doesn't go off. There are no maggots. It's, it's fine. It's like trusting God day by day saying that he will provide. And them not gathering on the Sabbath is actually trusting that this manna is going to be all right, that he's provided. He provides day by day. Sabbath is about saying, I trust you to provide. It's not all down to me. It's not down to my efforts. It's in you. And in Nehemiah's time, the people were not prepared to rest on the Sabbath when there's business to be done, when there's money to be made. Actually, there's a big issue in our society about working too much, about working all the hours we get so we can get more, or even so we can keep where we are and keep in touch with what is going on. Um, our sort of prized possessions, that we all have our sources of entertainment, enjoyment and communication, like these phones, uh, mean that 
It's like a gateway sometimes for work or for colleagues to contact us at all hours. Um, I don't know about you, but it's hard not to look at this when I ought to be doing something else or not to be following up some email or something that's come in when I ought to be doing something else. It's hard to resist that email, that WhatsApp message. There are benefits and dangers of an always-on 24-7 culture. What does it mean for us? So in Jesus' time, the Jews actually set really strict laws about Sabbath, saying you mustn't pick grain, you mustn't walk more than a certain distance, you mustn't build a fire, all that sort of thing on Sabbath. Jesus spoke against this and said, actually, no, it is lawful to do good on a Sabbath. He said, people are not made for Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for people. It's there to help people. We do not need to be legalistic about keeping this time. Um, so the Jews had had that day off on the, Sabbath, on the Saturday. Early Christians clearly met on the first day of the week, we're told in, in Acts, the day of Jesus' resurrection, the Sunday. Could they take an actual day off? Um, some, particularly those from a Jewish background, would have kept following that pattern, we suspect. Many early Christians probably couldn't. Many early Christians were slaves, actually, and what they could do was obviously pretty uh, constrained. We see in the New Testament there is a deeper spiritual fulfillment of Sabbath explained in the book of Hebrews, which is about finding spiritual rest in God as we obey him through faith. And yet, our bodies, our minds, our spirits are still the same. We're still made to benefit from a rhythm of work and rest. Um, over the last couple of years, we've been doing a discipleship huddle as an eldership team. And one of the key things we've picked up on is patterns of works and rest, and that's been quite transformational, thinking about how we rest, working from a place of rest. So what can we do? I don't believe we need a particular day off, whether it's a Sunday or whatever. I don't believe there is a set thing you have to do, um, particularly if it's Sunday. That's frankly quite problematic for me as a pastor. Um, but we do need to find some regular rhythm where we can rest, where we're not working, where we're ignoring our work emails or whatever, perhaps even taking a break from Facebook or whatever it is that we obsess on, where we do something that helps us to find strength and peace and rest in God. It'll be different for all of us. I'm an introvert, so I like to sort of not see other people, read, do crosswords, that sort of thing. Withdraw. Other people might be extrovert and they like to see people, but whatever helps us to find rest. Um, for us, I have to say, we have, just this last year, had been able to change our working pattern around. So I tend to work on a Saturday and take Tuesday off as a pretty clear day off. And that's been a great blessing to us. But we need to find ways to make it work. To get ready for the long haul. Not to drive through the whole time. But to find patterns of work and rest which are going to help us keep going for the next 20 years. Get a rhythm of life. And finally, uh, sex and relationships. Okay, so this is Nehemiah 23 to 30. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I don't recommend that, by the way. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their, to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness of being, and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Okay, there was a particular issue in this culture over mixed marriages. The context was God had sent the Israelites into this land. They were surrounded by people worshipping other gods. um, And there were some horrific um, religious practices which often involved sex because they were to do with fertility gods. So part of um, some of the... Some of their practices of the people around were to do with having sex with shrine prostitutes as part of your worship and even child sacrifice. So when God sent the Israelites into this land, he said, don't marry them, don't get mixed up with them. Um, It's going to cause you problems. If you fall in love, if you marry someone who's into this, it's going to lead you away. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon that Nehemiah uses as an example here. So Solomon, wisest person on earth, wrote most of Proverbs, probably also Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And yet, he had many wives worshipping all kinds of gods. And in his later years, they led him astray and turned him away from God. Now, we need to be absolutely clear here. Um, Racially, culturally mixed marriages are not a problem in God's eyes for Christians. At times, people have used biblical passages like this to argue against interracial relationships. I need to say very clearly, um, that is utterly wrong. Okay? That is not what the New Testament teaches. It teaches that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, that all the barriers between people groups have been broken down in Jesus. So we need to be very clear about that and don't let people misuse the Bible in that way. The old racial barriers are destroyed in Jesus. But... There are many other relationship issues that can derail us, can divert us from keeping true to God in the long haul. It's difficult to talk to because it's, it's so personal. Our relationships, who we love, are at the heart of our being. And our society at the moment is so focused on the idea of being who we want to be that if it feels good, it must be love and that we must be tolerant about everything but the idea that some things are wrong. But God, our loving Father, wants the best for us. For our families, for our children, for our society. And he does set boundaries around relationships because he cares and his ways are best. And I look back at my friends over the years, at those I've I've journeyed with, and I've seen many different kinds of pain and temptation that have got in the way of people's faith and trust in God. I've seen Christian friends where he got into an adul- into adulterous relationships and gambling debt that derailed his faith and derailed their marriage. Friends who've fallen in love with partners who don't share their faith and then have had to struggle to keep going and keeping true to God or have been drifted off and taken away by that situation. A dear friend who struggled to reconcile his same-sex attraction Um, with his evangelical understanding of the Bible and ultimately um, has let that go and, uh, and, uh, and moved away from that. A friend whose pain over the failure of his Christian marriage has led him to give up on God. It's real 
and it hurts. And in some of these situations, there are no easy answers. But there is a call to put God first in our relationships, to trust him and his ways, to make choices to do things his way, even when we don't want to, and everything in our society tells us it's okay, do what you want. So we talked about 20 years of the King's Church. Where will we, where will each of us be in another 20? Brian will just be reading his sort of royal telegram. (laughs) The decisions we make today, the choices we put to trust God first, actually have long shadows in our lives, in our families. Um, God wants to make something wonderful out of each one of us, like that picture of the angel in the marble or the caterpillar turning to the butterfly. We're sort of coming to an end, but I, I wanted to take just a moment of silence just to reflect on what God wants to do in us to help us to keep proof from it. It may be that as I've been speaking of these three areas of money, of work and rest, of sex and relationships, you feel like God has highlighted something in your heart that, that needs to change or that you know, could be a problem. Um, I'd encourage you just to pray about that now and Um, if you feel like it's something that you want help with, uh, talk to someone you trust, get them to share it with them, um, maybe get them to pray with you, um, because God wants all of us to keep going for him, to keep true in the long haul. So we'll take a moment for reflection, and then I will pray just to sort of close things up at the end. Father, I want to thank you that you love us so much. You look at us with grace as a parent who loves their child so much, whatever we do. And I want to thank you that you want, you have great plans for us. You want us to become more and more like your son Jesus, day by day. Although we talked about three big issues that can derail us. And I want to pray you'd help us if there are issues for each of us there, to identify it and to put our trust in you. And I want to pray you'd help us day by day to become more like your son Jesus. And I pray if we, want, if we need someone to walk with us or to share, I thank you that as we open our hearts, there is light. And I pray you'd help us to walk in the light with each other and go forward together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So there'll be teas and coffees at the back.